Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon to record our March 2022 edition of the Journal Club. How are you, Ben? Uh, very well. And I was listening to you on the Sack Safety podcast this morning and lovely to speak to you face to face this evening. It is indeed. And that was a pleasure just released today. So hopefully by the time you're listening to this, if you haven't, go back to listen to that one <laughs> yeah. as well. Well, we've got four articles to discuss across a broad range of topics again. Uh, Ben, do you want to just jump right in and start us off? Yeah, let's do it. So the first article is called An Ethical Framework for Conducting Active Shooter Simulation in the Healthcare Environment, and it's by Andrew Ketterer and Andrea Austin of Emergency Mind Podcast fame, and it was published in Simulation Healthcare as a Concepts and Commentary. And can I say, Vic, like, I am so glad you nominated this one, actually, because I looked at this last month and I sort of hesitated because I have so many strong internal, emotional and political responses to this concept of active shooter drills that I kind of thought, oh, I'm going to put this one in the too hard basket. I hate guns. I'm going to say something terrible. Uh, and also, you know, some of our simulcast friends in New York recently experienced having an active shooter in their hospital for real. So I just kind of avoided this article's gaze. And I'm so glad that you didn't, because I think even for a country like Australia, where an active shooter situation is dramatically less likely, there's some really great points in here that I think probably translate to other concepts as well. Yeah, well, I was obviously drawn to it because Andrea Austin is a friend and I think she and Dan Dworkis are doing such a great job at the Emergency Mind. And as I read it, I thought... Uh, the implications of this are not just for active shooter simulations. I think all the things that activate our emotions and feelings, of which there are many, uh, probably could take some lessons from this article. Yeah, absolutely. So at its heart, the article to me really reads like a call for caution regarding jumping in enthusiastically into doing an active shooter type sim in your emergency department. The authors start by outlining the immensity of the problem from a US perspective and highlight that between 2000 and 2019, about 4.5% of active shooter events actually occurred in a healthcare setting. So it makes sense and it's justifiable that training for an event like this, and even in some ways doing some stress inoculation training, is not an unreasonable curricular goal. However, Ketterer and Austin really highlight that very little literature in healthcare simulation in particular considers or even mentions the ethical considerations of running this type of scenario, particularly in situ. Just at a kind of conceptual level, it would seem very reasonable to assume that there would be the potential to trigger anxiety, moral distress, or post-traumatic stress disorder in participants who have been either involved or had loved ones involved in that kind of setting. And I think if we hearken back to Anne Mullen's work on simulation safety, the potential physical risks here to patients and staff through sim, this is certainly a real situation where a confused bystander could potentially cause serious and some unexpected harm to an innocent participant or a faculty member. So the authors really highlight that there's much more sophisticated discussion about this in educational literature, i.e. like school education type settings where they obviously have to do lots of active shooter drills as well. And in one really beautifully written paragraph that I'm just going to quote, they write, Schoenfield et al. describes several ethical issues created by unannounced high fidelity simulations taking place in K-12 school environments, specifically citing active shooter training as being an area of significant concern. Proponents of such educational approaches argue that the elements of surprise and fear 
best prepare participants for how to act in the event of a real attack. This attitude seems to be most apparent in designing active shooter scenarios. Simulating more commonplace disasters such as fires or tornadoes does not seem to evoke the same level of theatrical zeal. And I can see you nodding, Vic. Yeah, absolutely. As you know, I highlighted this paragraph as well. And I think it just speaks to what we decide to simulate about is important and sends a message for better or worse. And uh, as I think this phrase, theatrical zeal, is probably a good one. And I think it can be applied to many of the things we do that are healthcare related as well. And the, as we know, beware the theatrical zeal in the surgical airway or the resuscitative hysterotomy. And uh, some of these scenarios, I think, should perhaps be uh, approached with the same amount of caution. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's a uh, slightly careless enthusiasm that I'm sure we've all committed from time to time, but it's a really good moment to reflect on how these same principles might be informing our practice as well. So the authors basically propose adapting some pre-existing guidelines from school-based training to healthcare. They highlight the importance of a clearly defined goal. Uh, They talk about the tenet of run, hide, fight, which is basically you should be running first if you can identify an evacuation route, you should be hiding if running is not an option, and fighting is your absolute last resort, which, you know, makes sense. And then secondly, they talk about another learning objective, which might be responding to the casualties of such an event. And the authors argue that the run, hide, fight training is really best conducted not by us in healthcare simulation, but by law enforcement or security, and that the resources required and the potential psychological trauma from a really realistic active shooter sim really make it hard to justify that they have enough educational benefit for the risks involved. And they also talk about dropping the physical realism further by instead of simulating this, why not just talk through with didactics, do tabletop workshops, and walk through drills that can still mentally rehearse this process without sound effects or really dramatically moulage patients. They then argue that for that second goal, responding to casualties, that actually this is more likely to be less triggering and more helpful to have simulated patients with realistic injuries. And I've got to say to me, this makes instinctive sense. We are used to seeing some level of trauma in the emergency setting and having the active shooter part of the scenario just removed suggests this would be much less distressing despite the realism. The article actually provides a really great diagram of six steps from the National Association of School Psychologists that provide a nice step-by-step approach to developing a simulated experience in this area. And I won't go through it all, but in particular, there's a really strong theme of continuously informing participants and providing an opt-in, opt-out option so that people are prepared and can also self-select out of this if it's triggering for them, which I thought was really sensible. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that keeps on coming up is hiding uh, intent from participants is problematic. And uh, I know some people do unannounced drills for, for instance, cardiac arrests in hospitals. I know there are ways that can work, but I also know that there are many ways that it can go wrong. Uh, And I think others have written about the use of deception and simulation and what the benefits are, given that there are a lot of downsides. And I think we have bought into this idea of throw people in and then they'll get used to being thrown in and <laughs> that's not generally how it works out yeah i think we've, we've seen over these a number of sort of case studies where this has gone really badly for the participants but it's also really negatively impacted the facilitators with some guilt regarding what they'd potentially uh, yeah. organized 
And I thought that on that note of guilt, I thought that was one of the interesting things that maybe I hadn't thought about was this brought to front of mind for healthcare providers the idea that they might need to leave patients uh, in an exposed and dangerous situation while they were running. Uh, And obviously working where I work, I haven't had to confront that in the real world. And you're right, um, you may end up getting much more trauma in training than you ever need uh, in real life. And that's always a trade-off between uh, things that you're subjecting people to that you may or may not need to in the event of it really happening. Yeah. And I, I was, I had sort of mixed feelings in that, in that I felt like that concept was really highlighted as a risk, which makes sense, the risk of moral distress. But I could also see how having to mull over and understand that concept of potentially having to run to save your own life and how strongly that conflicts with the identity that we've been socialised for in healthcare before you're in that kind of situation would also be helpful. But I don't think you need to sim it necessarily to have that thought and discussion. Yeah, it's interesting. It sort of made me think probably at a lower level about the work that we were doing early on in COVID and stopping people running into cardiac arrests and telling them to stop and put on PPE first. And that caused people a lot of distress. And a lot of people were saying, oh, that's too bad. I'll put myself at risk. And because that is what healthcare professionals maybe saw as the right thing to do. Uh, So it does take a bit of a cognitive leap and maybe it takes some training, but it probably requires some recognition that you're going to feel a certain way and to know what you can do in response. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. One really pragmatic part of this article that I liked is that the authors provide a list of four basically just never do this points. So don't include gunfire sounds, don't do it unannounced, don't use super realistic moulage without engaging with participants in advance, and don't use props that look like realistic firearms. And I thought, look, those are all very sensible, simple, actionable points, and I thought they were uh, very wisely put forward by the authors of this article. Yes, and would have actually been things that would have been otherwise breaking the law in some parts of our country. Yeah. <laughs> so overall, look, I think this is a really sensible and well-written commentary. Um, and whether or not you're thinking about doing an active shooter drill, I do agree with you, Vic, that there's a lot of these points could be really generalized to that concept of the big medutainment style, hyper-realistic sim with lots of drama uh, and asking ourselves, do we really need to dive in with that much realism and drama? Or are we just doing this because it's fun for us without any value for the participants or with negative impact on our participants. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, congratulations to those authors and uh, encourage people to read it if they haven't thought about this idea uh, before. All right, we're going to take a bit of a change of tack now, Ben. Uh, The next article we're going to do is from Simulation in Healthcare, and the title of it is Computational Simulation is a Vital Resource for Navigating the COVID-19 Pandemic, Uh, and this is by Andrew Page and colleagues. Um, And these colleagues represent a group of uh, scientists from Australia, US and the UK with a variety of backgrounds, some of them in computer science, some of them in epidemiology and healthcare. And I put this article in because I feel as though we concentrate a lot on healthcare professionals standing around a mannequin or simulated patient or engaging in some team-based simulation. And it's easy to forget that our field also includes simulation and computer modeling. And most of the large simulation journals, including simulation healthcare and advances, uh, encourage these kinds of papers, and yet I'm not sure that we get as many of them as, say, some of the either infectious disease, epidemiology, public health um, 
journals. So I thought it was just worth highlighting that this is a paper about the use of simulation and computer modelling to inform public health policy, and in this case during COVID-19. And uh, so the background, the basic idea about this is that using computer modelling and simulation, we can run many versions of the future by simulating different factors and how they might contribute. So just by way of my really simple understanding here, Ben, uh, if you plug into the model that COVID spreads from one person to four others every three days, you can model how many people will be infected in 10 days. Uh, What happens if they wear masks and they only spread it to three people instead of four? How will that change things? So that's the ultra simple model. But obviously, the people who do this are building models that factor in many, many uh, uh, things that might influence that um, spread and then infectivity. And I thought it was kind of interesting uh, because obviously these models are very complex and um, I feel like in COVID with all the doom scrolling, we've all kind of become amateur epidemiologists now. We're talking about the R naught and things. <laughs> Did you find yourself doing some 100%. of that? <laughs> A lot of graph experts over the last two years, yeah. Well, these are the real graph experts. Uh, and then I'm not going to go into detail with the paper, and I think unless you are someone in this field, you probably wouldn't. But I think the idea is important. And explain a couple of things about how they set these model ups. They talked about dynamic simulation uh, models and basically make the point that they've got a long history in infectious disease epidemiology and even if we hadn't lived through COVID we saw movies like Contagion and other things where they showed these kind of graphs. They talk about different kinds of models like system dynamic models and how people move between groups from susceptible to exposed to infected to recovered and then agent-based models which look at the real world and what kind of behaviours in a population uh, affect spread. So they gave this background and then they um, made the point that this was, and I, I like the phrase, testing before investing. So when they start looking at what human behaviours uh, occur, how people travel, what they do at work, masks, social distancing, they say then you can decide which of these things you want to invest more time and effort in either persuading the population to do or creating laws or putting money into uh, depending on what those interventions are. And they end up talking about a model that they have developed, the values in viral dispersion model or VIVID, where they uh, particularly looked at these what they called non-pharmaceutical interventions in COVID. And they compared the effects of quarantine slash lockdown, contact tracing and physical distancing. Uh, And then not surprisingly discovered that these things actually had different impacts in different age groups. And the really the point of interest for this is that you end up having to make values-based decisions about your priorities because unsurprisingly that a lot of these things don't make much difference to young populations with COVID and yet they make a big difference to older populations. So do you ring fence the older population or do you try and spread this out across everybody? And we saw that play out, although probably in a relatively uninformed way, I would say, in our public discourse as well. And uh, I'm going to use a quote here, when human lives are at stake, this is a more ethical way to conduct policy evaluation than trial and error approaches, uh, which are obviously much slower. And then once you've got the error, you are stuck with it. So just a nice little reminder that computer modeling is good, I think, Ben. Your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I I found it a pretty challenging read to follow all those concepts. So I appreciate you explaining to, (laughs) to me. 
<laughs> basically. Uh, but it, well, I think for me, what was really useful about the article is just, again, a, a reminder of uh, the breadth of things that simulation can be considered to be. And like you said, we often think about it as around the bedside, but actually there's a whole different sort of uh, field that we don't know as much about uh, that could be uh, profoundly impactful. Yeah, and I think it fits into the general ideas about um design thinking based simulation and having prototypes and testing them out before you actually have to put them into practice so i think it fits with a lot of our paradigms for now thinking about simulation as a way of testing before investing and mm. i'm going to use that phrase i think yeah in the it's so nice it's catchy yeah <laughs> <laughs> so should we move on to neonatology boot camp yeah back to back to some healthcare. yes which i was devastated to find out is not about teaching tiny premature babies how to do push-ups and pace lots of Play spotlight, but instead <laughs> it's about the impact of a two-day neonatology boot camp on a group of new neonatology fellows. So the article, oh, right. good is... clarification. <laughs> so, so the article is called "The Hidden Impact of Neonatology Boot Camp: A Qualitative Study." It's by Kessie Yang et al. and published in Simulation in Healthcare. And this, to me, was a really lovely qualitative study from the team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. It's um, basically highlighting that we have pretty good evidence now that boot camps are really well liked and can be associated with an increase in measured skill or reported self-confidence in specific skills or domains. Um, But the authors here really wanted to dig beyond what we can statistically measure and explore the impact of this social event on the participants' professional self-identity. And what they got from my perspective is a really nice breakdown on the ways in which these fellows come together cross-pollinate ideas, and then essentially really share their vulnerabilities and nerves about this step up from resident to future neonatologist. So the camp itself was a mix of learning opportunities that you might expect at this sort of thing. Some didactics, some work groups, some small group discussions, some sims, uh, and the camp included fellows from multiple institutions who were deliberately sort of curated into different subgroups to ensure that candidates mixed with people from other institutions. And in the end, about 15 participants were interviewed through a semi-structured interview format to the point where the authors found thematic saturation. And the themes that they found were introspection about starting fellowship, learning to lead and communicate, gaining reassurance from the shared experience, understanding the fellow role, and developing future identity as a neonatologist. And what I really loved about this study is that while these findings are probably not super surprising, uh, they elicit from this very specific social group, i.e. like baby neonatologists, that these are really almost universal and very human themes and personal insecurities as they take a step up in the leadership chain. And there's a beautifully relatable representative quote in Table 2 where one of the interviewees states, I was just a resident and all of a second, now magically, I am a neonatology fellow and there really was no difference between who I was as a resident except for a label. And that sort of terrified me when people would look to me to be the expert. I think we all go through that as we move up in our career in different ways with the humility that we are still the same person and suddenly there's been a change in social expectation. The participants describe how sharing these thoughts and seeing each other perform gradually helps them understand their role better, but also helps them understand that critical step in the leadership process where they learn that they don't have to know all the answers if they can collaborate effectively and trust their team to work through a problem together. The article then dives deep in the discussion session about this concept of professional identity formation, which for me, Vic, is something that intrinsically makes sense, but not really something I've thought a whole heap about. 
And they quote Jarvis Selinger here as defining professional identity formation to be an adaptive developmental process that happens simultaneously at two levels. At the level of the individual, which involves the psychological development of that person, and at the collective level, which involves a socialization of the person into appropriate roles and forms of participation in the community's work. So in essence, they're saying, yes, you do do some internal work to accept your new role, but also your community also guides and beckons you into that role and nurtures you somehow and helps you define who you are through that socialized process. And that made me reflect a lot about how we train medical specialists in general, Vic, because, uh, you know, being for me, being a preparer, I hated the sink or swim style approach to medical training where you just sort of stepped up and then you gradually grow into a role. But this acknowledgement that you can't actually do all of that work internally, you can't fully prepare for that role. You actually rely on your workplace and those cultural connections to guide you and teach you about this new state of being. And I found that a really delightful thing to reflect upon. And it's almost a little bit freeing. Mm. It makes me wonder whether they are thinking about changing the name from boot camp to something a little bit more inclusive. Yeah, <laughs> that would work. Professional identity yeah. camp doesn't quite have the same, <laughs> same ring to Well, it. it's interesting. And, and I reflected as I was reading this on the names that different disciplines put on overlapping phenomenon, shall we say. And I think professional identity formation in a psychologic sense has overlap with, but also some differences with things like enculturation in an ethnographic or anthropologic sense. And uh, what I would have liked in this without being a complete methods nerd is maybe this uh, conceptual framework around professional identity being introduced at the beginning because I think it would have helped me understand why they found the themes they did when I feel like they were probably sensitised from with that. I don't think they just found this and then went and looked up professional identity formation uh, because it's a it is an amazing discussion of that that uh, certainly had many lessons for me in that and uh, I think they could have introduced that even a little bit earlier. Yes, and I'm wondering if I can cheat here and mention we were talking before the podcast about the fact that this was a phenomenologic approach. Are you able to maybe explain what that is? Oh, dear, Ben. <laughs> well, I guess when you're thinking about what are the different schools of thought in your approach and your qualitative things, phenomenology, just as they say, yeah. is about trying to understand the lived experience of a group of people, yeah. and that might be a bit different to grounded theory uh -huh. or uh, ethnographies where you're really looking at the culture and that might be an approach where you're embedded with the group of people themselves. Hmm. So that's the uber simple approach that you get in qualitative methods 101 but mm -hmm. we're going to need to get a real expert to go deep <laughs> cool all righty well the authors close this by really suggesting that this new knowledge and framework from their analysis could suggest that boot camps would benefit from explicitly defining that professional identity formation as a learning objective. And I would be very curious to see what the impact of declaring that hidden curriculum would be and whether you, instead of uh, hoping that that will develop over a two-day period, instead have a workshop where you actually talk about that and what that means uh, more overtly. Um, it does sound like that's happening already at some level, but uh, I'd be interested to find out more. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it. I think it explicitly says something that most of us know, which is there uh, is much more going on at orientation than just finding out where the change rooms are and what the algorithm is for the management of X, Y, or Z, and that's a good thing. 
but possibly being as intentional as we can about that is likely to be beneficial. So, yeah, thank you, Ben. And I agree, a very nice description and hopefully food for thought for many beyond those who look after neonates. Absolutely. All right. Well, the last paper we're going to do is from Clinical Simulation in Nursing, and the title of this is Healthcare Simulation Standards of Best Practice, Simulation Design. And this is uh, last September 2021, uh, Clinical Simulation in Nursing. And this is one of a collection of papers put out by Inaxel, the Standards Committee. Now, Inaxel is the International Nursing Association for Clinical Simulation and Learning. Uh, that's well known to some of our listeners, but may not be to others. Uh, it's quite US-based, but it is also international, as they say. And although it's nursing-based, I think many in the simulation community uh, look to these standards. They are not the only standards, uh, and the sim world has many overlapping standards, Society for Simulation in Healthcare, the surgeons have their own set of standards in the US. Uh, so I think we need to look at this in the overall context of that, but I like the idea of thinking, well, what are the standards when you write a scenario? Because uh, myself, I've never really found great resources for doing that. Uh, EM Sim Cases is one of my go-tos and Kyla Kaners and her crowd we did an article with. But Ben, do you have a go-to resource for, for scenario writing? No, I, th- I suspect much like you, you sort of, we, you know, we uh, started with an EMCM cases template and then we adapted and added to it with time uh, to suit our own needs. I'm certainly very happy with it, but um, mm. I agree that, you know, you run the risk of if you're not comparing it to anything, not really realising what else is out there and what things you haven't thought of. Mm. Yeah, well, two reasons I put this in, uh, because the Anaxal standards also include standards for debriefing, for faculty development, for professional development, uh, and so they are a go-to, I think, uh, across the board, and they also serve as conceptual frameworks for a lot of people's subsequent uh, empiric work in, in simulation scholarship. The other reason I put it in is I feel as though we have not always done justice to clinical simulation in nursing, which is another uh, major healthcare simulation journal. Uh, it does have some open access articles. It has a mixed publishing. Uh, it has an impact factor that is very high, uh, and they continue to publish excellent stuff. So I thought we should also just highlight this journal in case it's not on people's reading list. Uh, Okay, so what about these standards? And I guess I would say, unsurprisingly, that there's not too many surprises in these standards. And I think the value is in having something to go back to and look through, because although perhaps what's in these aren't surprising, I suspect we would find many of our own scenarios that do not comply with or, or incorporate many of these standards. So I'm just going to go through the broad brushstrokes. The paper is structured according to the criteria, and then there are some explanatory notes for each criteria where they go into some detail. So there are things like uh, you should have content experts working with simulation specialists when you design a scenario. I should do some kind of a needs assessment and also be able to articulate the objectives. Uh, Make sure that the scenario aligns the modality to those objectives. Uh, ensure that there's some context provided for the learners uh, in the scenario, 
think about fidelity and they do use that word but they also explain the breadth of what that might encompass and uh, have a pre-briefing and a debriefing so as I said these sound like good uh, motherhood statements but as I read through it I thought there's also plenty of gold in the detail for these so I suggest people have a look at it yeah 100 I like them I thought um clearly very well thought out and I guess harkening back to our first paper today about um, the theatrical zeal component. I thought there were some really nice nods to avoiding that in the guidelines and talking about matching your uh, physical realism and your psychological fidelity with the learning objectives and the needs of that particular task, some allusions to functional task alignment, uh, the importance of piloting your sim and reflecting on whether it's effective. Uh, there was a lot of really nice tips in there. I can imagine... Uh, if you're in a small simulation service writing your own sims, it could be a little bit overwhelming. Uh, I guess the, the idea of standards of best practice can sometimes be uh, a bit intimidating. There's some really nice practical tips in there. So uh, mm. I think very well done. Yeah, and I, I take your point about the uh, if you're on your own and it might be overwhelming. I think for all of us it would be good to just every three to six months take a couple of scenarios through and go, how does this go? And we'd keep the principles in front of mind without us feeling like it had to be a great burden every time we wrote every scenario. Uh, yeah, and good work to them. And, and I think the other thing just to point out is usually when these standards are done, uh, it's the huge amount of consensus work and getting people together and a lot of different expertise. So congratulations to them for doing that. And I bet they learned a lot in the process as well. That's one of the benefits of being in these groups sometimes is that your own uh, scenario design improves. Absolutely. I was a little bit sad to see it not published in multiple publications, actually, like um, the consult and strobe statements, for example, because I do agree there's lots of value in here. Yeah, yeah, all the more reason for simulcast to highlight. <laughs> we, might, we might do a few more standards. Yeah, uh, yeah we should. Time time. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, we should, mm -hmm. yeah. All right, well, Ben, I hope you have a lovely March lined up. Uh, looking forward to seeing you around the traps and uh, talking with you again for the April Simulcast Journal Club. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Have a lovely month. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. Yeah. 